Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, is back on the show to share his macro and markets update with us. Urian discusses many topics with host Pamela Ritchie, including the continuing currency story, how China's reopening will affect global markets, and the rise of emerging markets this year. Urian speaks further about the dollar and how it's making new lows in this particular cycle. He says one thing to remember is that there are periods in the market cycle where the different regions in the world are highly synchronized. But there have been many periods in the past where that was not the case. This gives some thought into a possible recession. It's very plausible we are in a desynchronized cycle with Europe languishing. Urian points out EM could be the rising star again, especially with China's reopening, and how that could affect global commodities as well. Urian also touches upon a variety of other topics, including the supply chain story in 2023, the current headlines of the U.S. political system, and his thoughts on value investing. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on January 9th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So that was quite the melt up there. Um, and we still seem to be um, having that be okay at the moment. We're still melting up today, yes. And everything is kind of falling into place for now for the bullish case. You know, the dollar is down, um, real rates are down, credit spreads are, are well behaved. And obviously the payroll number on Friday uh, was the, the, the catalyst. Um, mainly that average hourly earnings uh, had now the second month in a row where the numbers were better than expected. And, you know, you can see how that's, you know, an important thing because we we see that the inflation data have been improving. Uh, the CPI peaked last June at 9%. It's coming down. But, of course, the Fed is not is focused on the labor market. You know, we know oil prices are down in copper and home prices and, you know, used car prices, those are all starting to come down. Uh, but that's not what the Fed's focused on. Fed's focused on labor. And so the fact that average hourly earnings are coming down, even though the way the, the payroll data itself were still pretty good, uh, I think for the bullish case, that, that was kind of a, a key uh, a key thing because that further allows the, the narrative to unfold that the Fed could actually, you know, be pivoting soon, maybe still going to 5%, but then, you know, kind of pulling a Greenspan from the back in the, the 1990 days. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I have my doubts as to whether that will play out in the way that the bullish narrative kind of has. Uh, but for now, you know, the markets are, are, are voting with, with, their, with their wallets, and, that, and that's what's going on right now. Yeah, it was interesting the way you said that. You know, it's it's allowing for for the bullish case. So I mean, there's 
there's a lot of people on both sides. And um, I don't know if you call it conviction, but there do seem to be two very, you know, clear cases on each side or one on each side. A lot needs to go right for, you know, for that to happen because the earnings estimates, and actually we can pull up uh, slide 16. And that slide, earnings peaks, was tweeted by Urian on January 12th. The earnings estimates for this year and next year, for this year they're pure, pretty muted, maybe plus 4%, so not, 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 a, not a big uh, robust move. And you know, it's clear that earnings have peaked for the cycle. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be a hard contraction or just a slowdown in growth. Uh, but you know, it's one thing if, if investors were really bearish on earnings, and then you could easily say, well, if the narrative pivots to just slightly better than that, then you've got this pent up kind of you know, energy. But the estimates are already pretty lofty. At the same time, the, the expectations for the Fed are already that the Fed is going to pivot, right? I mean, the Fed's going to go to 5%. Jay Powell and other Fed uh, members are, you know, getting blue in the face saying, like, listen, stock market, you know, you can't rally because that will loosen financial conditions and we're not going to pivot as fast as you think. Uh, but still, the market is believing that. That's what the market expects the Fed to do, which is to go from 5% back to 3 very, very quickly, even though the dots, which were just updated a few weeks ago in December, say that the Fed is basically not going to cut rates at all this year and, and is going to continue to raise them for the first six months or so. So the bullish narrative needs everything to go right. It needs for earnings to go up as much as already is expected and for the Fed to pivot pretty hard into that scenario. And that doesn't mean it can't happen, but it, it, to me, it's not a, it's not a no-brainer that, that everything is going to unfold in that way. But Urian, take us to the sentiment. I mean, you know, the headlines from Friday were exhaustion with selling, right? I mean, th these were the types of sort of um, descriptions you got of what type of buying that was. I mean, where, where does that take you, the sentiment piece, the momentum piece? Well, th this is a hard thing to try to unpack because so much of the market action is driven not by regular investors saying, okay, it's time to buy or sell, but by machines, right? I mean, a lot of the, the action is kind of algorithmically <clears throat> um, based. And we know, for instance, now that um, a lot of the options in the S&P 500, um, a, a lot of the, the volume in those options actually have less than maybe 48 hours until they expire. That, that we used to we used to never see that it used to be months out and so I don't know how much of this 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 uh, move higher in the last couple of days is just a result of machines playing on an algorithm saying you know the Fed's going to do this or that or or whether it's actual real investors and we saw that in October off of the lows as well that remember for those two days the the non profitable growth stocks were up 28 percent in two days. I mean, that's not normal behavior. So uh, so I, I, I think it's important not to get you know caught up in these short moves because ultimately uh, it really comes down to earnings and liquidity. And, and we'll show uh, slide seven here for a moment. And that slide he's referring to is the liquidity chart Urian tweeted on January 10th. This kind of notion of the overall liquidity environment and how much that's driving the markets um, this chart, you know, shows the Fed's balance sheet <clears throat> minus reverse repos minus the Treasury general account. 
as a proxy for how much liquidity is sloshing around in the system. And you can see that orange line uh, has done a really good job explaining the S&P 500. And so for the S&P to really make a sustainable new high, and I can see over the short term how, you know, it would be the ultimate head fake to take out those highs from about a month ago, because not many people would expect that. But <clears throat> for that to be sustainable, you need that orange line to go up and make higher highs. And, you know, that would mean that the Fed would have to <clears throat> significantly pivot here. And I think I think that's just premature. I think even if the numbers are continuing to improve as they currently are in terms of inflation, uh, that's a far uh, that's far away from the Fed actually not <clears throat> seeing through to raising rates to five and to then cutting them. I mean, the Fed has made it pretty clear that uh, it needs to see 2% inflation, not just falling inflation, uh, for for it to really you know um, bring rates back to neutral. So again, it's there's a lot of hurdles between here and a new bull market, in my view. One thing that we are seeing certainly change is, is as the Fed perhaps doesn't get closer to, to cutting or coming down the other side, it does seem like the dollar has peaked. The dollar has, has sort of made this decision um, that it can see enough to uh, to sort of track back. Uh, that is, we're seeing a real move in EM right now. Tell us uh, a little bit about that and the sustainability. Uh, emerging market equities are, are uh, doing very, very, very well. The dollar, as we speak, is making new lows for, for the, the this particular cycle. And I think, you know, the average hourly earnings numbers from um, from Friday's payroll report just indicate that the worst case scenario may not have to happen, which means the Fed raises rates to five and then kind of keeps going. I mean, I mean, some some people are talking about the Fed going to seven percent. Right. So, I mean, right. that would be that would be something. Uh, but one thing to remember is that, you know, there are periods in the market cycle where, the different regions in the world are all highly synchronized. You think about the financial crisis, for instance, everything right. was synchronized on the downside and on the upside. Uh, but there have been many other periods where that was not the case. Think about the early 2000s, for instance, which was EM's heyday. And now we have China reopening, even if that comes at a human cost in terms of people getting COVID, et cetera, um, and then traveling. Um, but China is reopening. EM has been dead money for a long time. Um, and the U.S. is slowing and quite possibly going into a recession if you trust the, 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 you know, the signal from the yield curve. Um, and so it's very plausible that we are in these desynchronized cycles where the U.S. is either slowing or going into a contraction. Europe is kind of languishing, uh, Japan a little bit as well. But EM could be finally the rising star again, led by a China reopening. I mean, remember, China hasn't really reopened no. since COVID. I mean, everyone else has, right? So you can imagine the pent-up demand for Chinese people consuming stuff and traveling. Um, and so so that there is a real fundamental story there. And if you get a weaker dollar on top of that, then that's just you know icing on the cake, right? Because... Right. Currency translation is a very big part, not only of the relative performance of these regions, but also relative earnings, right? Because, again, you, you don't have a single currency to look at when you look at non-U.S. or non-Canada or non-developed market uh, economies. So everything gets translated into dollars. And so the dollar going up or down has a material impact on that. 
I, I was thinking about that and just, um, you know, companies that are that are multinational companies and, and their story within and also the trade story and supply line. So, I mean, we know that China won't open on a dime and it's going to take longer than sort of this week, next week. But what does it mean actually for global companies that the supply chain story really should improve significantly? Is that priced in? It's. I think that is priced in to some degree. And of course, the notion of reshoring, especially with you know semiconductors, and that's part of the Biden agenda, of course. Um, I think that's kind of unknown. But I think just the the demand factor of you know over a billion people in China and therefore through EM uh, starting to spend again uh, that you know and and build of course I mean China is also stimulating policy right which is something the U.S. is on the other side of right we have right. complete gridlock on the fiscal side I mean just look at the fiasco we just had in the in Congress you know with just electing a speaker. So uh, it's very unlikely that anything will happen in the U.S. on the fiscal side. And of course, we know where the Fed is on the monetary side, that a pivot, I think, is not coming anytime soon. And and, but at the same time, you have fiscal and monetary stimulus in China. They are building things again. So you can see kind of like a mini 2009, if you will. Remember, after the financial crisis, it was China that got the whole thing going again because they did this massive stimulus, which they're not doing to that degree, uh, to, you know, today. But that just the on the rate of change of economic activity, uh, that was enough to kind of get the whole thing going. So I think it will be more of a regional, uh, you know, fractured thing uh, and not a global thing. But after many years of of disappointment, uh, EM is is having its day and. By extension, value as well. I mean, today it's the large cap growth names, but they have been, you know, uh, but that that is more an exception uh, rather than the rule. Uh, fitting into the overall story of China reopening, of, of stimulus being available, uh, does that take commodities along with it for the ride? I think so. And, and actually, it's interesting. If we go to slide one, um, you know, commodities were the number one bestseller, if you will, uh, in, in 2022. This is my periodic table. Yurian is referring to the periodic table of investment returns he tweeted on January 9th. Commodities, cash and gold, you know, interesting, uh, interesting group of asset classes. Not, not the most practical things to invest in, but uh, but certainly, um, uh, you know, it's certainly noteworthy. And so I think commodities, you know, uh, the question is, are they in a super cycle, a, a secular bull market? And I think that they are. And so I think commodities and value and non-U.S. Uh, and as, you know, driven by emerging markets, I think those will continue to be uh, kind of driving uh, the you know the story here. And you know, we talked about this last week. My my sense is that 2023 is going to be kind of a, a year of frustration, if you will, frustrating to both the bulls and the bears because I think neither of them are going to get their way. Right? Like the the the, the bearish scenario. Uh, is not as obvious as it seems because a lot of this has already been uh, has already unfolded, right? I mean, the PE ratio in the S and P 500 was down 31% last year. That that's a very large derating, uh, and then even if earnings are the other shoe to drop, a lot of that is already priced in to some degree, even though the earnings estimates are are holding up as we talked about earlier. So. To me, the bearish scenario of earnings are going to drop, therefore the market has to go down. It can happen. It's not, it's certainly not implausible, but it's also not 
a slam dunk. But at the same time, uh, the bullish scenario where everything is priced in, uh, be a contrarian, you know, the, the timeline doesn't always uh, line up in terms of price and earnings moving in the same direction. And that's certainly true. And um, that also, I think, is a little bit too easy to say, let's just be a contrarian. It's all priced in. Uh, because if, you know, if earnings do fall um, and the Fed does not pivot, that, that, that those are going to be headwinds as well. So my sense is that it's going to be neither of the two um, and that what's in the middle is kind of a choppy sideways move where you're going to see large swings in both directions. And to me, the, the, the way to, to make money in 2023 is less about the beta, the movement in the overall asset classes, and more about the alpha about those second order asset allocation uh, moves in, for instance, in commodities um, uh, or, or gold or EM versus other markets. And I think that's where the action is going to be. So it's, it's going to be, I, my sense is going to be more of a flat year as they continue to kind of crisscross each other. Um, but that where, and that the money to be made is going to be at that second order level. Mm-hmm. So how then do we think about the 60, 40? I mean, um, that's, not as much about commodities, is it? Yeah. So the the sixty forty, um, you know, we see this in the bond in the bond market right now, right? The ten year yield, if I'm looking, glancing over here on my Bloomberg, is down to three fifty one now. Um, and so to and so today, actually, both the sixty and the forty are working well. And that, and in a way, that kind of makes sense because neither of them did well last year, right? So it it would be it's kind of it's kind of intuitive that maybe they either neither do well or they both do well. But my sense is that if if earnings are the next shoe to drop and the Fed does not pivot um, the way the market expects, then the 60, I think, will be under pressure, not to new cycle lows, but in this choppy sideways range that, that I was just describing. And I think bonds, you know, after having, after having a horrible year in 2022, uh, could be the port in the storm again. At this point, uh, you know, on a short-term basis, both asset classes are positive, positively correlated. But on a five-year basis, they are they have no correlation at this point. But I, I don't think that that will last. So my sense is that this, that 60-40 will work again this year. Uh, I just don't know which side will work. Maybe both will work. But I think at least one of them will work. And so I think in that sense, 22 was the uh, the exception rather than the norm. What do Canadian investors need to take away, if anything, from, as you say, there was some chaos in, in the U.S. political system, particularly on, on choosing a speaker. Is it just the gridlock story? I mean, is that, is that actually all you need to know? Certainly on fiscal policy, it, it is going to be gridlock because even the Republicans can decide among themselves. I mean, this was entirely a Republican story. I'm sure the Democrats were... We're, 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 you know, we had a good chuckle over all of this. Um, and this is about, you know, Donald Trump and how much influence does he still have? And obviously the fact that Kevin McCarthy, that it took, what is it, 14 rounds to get elected as a speaker shows his influence or his, or the infighting because he, that was actually Trump's candidate, but, uh, the, these kind of hardcore MAGA people, um, you know, uh, did not want him. Um, so, I think overall it means no legislation, gridlock, markets tend to like that. A lot of stuff was already passed the last two years, so I don't think there's anything super urgent that is going to fall victim to that. 
But the inevitable thing that's going to come up again, as it always does um, at, so at certain points in the cycle, is the debt ceiling, right? Because you yeah. wonder what how that's going to play out. And, you know, the debt ceiling, we've talked about this. It's something that everyone always worries about when it happens. And, um, and you know, the can always gets kicked down the road. And inevitably, the two sides will meet because basically everybody loses um, – and, you know, it's not like the Republicans are, are saints when it comes to fiscal spending or not. You know, Trump was just as bad as anyone else on, on in terms of uh, deficit spending and things like that. So it, it's inevitably going to come up. And, and maybe because the GOP is more fractured, uh, the, that McCarthy will not have the, the power um, to to kind of pull the, the Republicans you know, together on making a deal. So it could get messy. But. The debt ceiling has always been resolved, and I don't doubt for a moment that even after such some pain, it will get resolved again uh, when it comes up. Um, when you see these spikes in the market, we uh, you mentioned you know which companies did well and sort of you know sort of the mega mega cap that that kind of story. Um, how do you again see that working out through the year? I mean, the question is always sort of do do you come back into tech right now? Do you wait? Does it go sideways? I mean. Give us your broad view on that sector. Yeah, so I, I tend to look at um, more like the, uh, the big growers as a group, uh, which includes mostly, you know, it, that's mostly tech, but not not exclusively tech. But, okay. you know, what we've called the nifty 50, and we've talked about that in the past, um, you know, it, it looks like it ended an eight, eight to 10 year run uh, relative to the rest of the market. And that 2022 was kind of a mean reversion year in a way. Uh, the same thing that happened in 01 after the dot-com uh, boom and, and, and then bubble, that was the end of an era, and it led to massive mean reversion into value, into small caps, into international. And in many ways, that's what we've been seeing over the past year. And I, I suspect that that will continue. Um, uh, I mean, the big growers still have the same things working for them, you know, financial engineering and high margins and low interest rates, but rates are higher than they were. Um, and um, and I think it would actually be good for investors and good for active management uh, for that pie to kind of get a little bit bigger. Uh, and, and we see that play out in EM, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Any other parts of the international market that are of interest? Japan is obviously something, I mean, I, I don't know what what you think of that, but watching interest rates rise in Japan just even a little bit was was kind of a big piece of uh, the end of your story. Yeah, it's interesting that you know the Bank of Japan. I think last week was in buying record amounts of bonds to protect the higher band, right? So it raised right. the band, and it still has to do all of this QE just to meet that. And it just shows you how difficult it is um, to kind of repress, you know, the, the, the financial system. And we we talked about this maybe a few years ago that it's. You know, holding down rates artificially through quantitative easing and policies like that is like holding a beach ball underwater. Like it, you know, it, it wants to come up. And I think the Japanese are going to have an issue with that. But at the same time, um, it's good for the yen, right, which has been, right. you know, very weak uh, recently. And again, it comes back to the currency translation. You know, the currency translation, it's not the end all be all of international asset allocation, but it's, it plays a big role. So if the dollar goes down and, and the yen goes up, um, then, you know, uh, and even if the cycles are kind of similar, 
uh, you can you can still do well. And of course, Japan. Um, and actually, I have this chart here. And that chart he's referring to is the global earnings cycle. He tweeted on January 12th. You know, the, the thing about Japan and Europe and EM is that they're really cheap, and that can be a value trap, right? I mean, if you buy something purely on valuation, you, you it can be a frustrating experience because ultimately. Uh, the relative performance is driven by relative earnings, but in this chart with a lot of squiggles going on, but that uh, the main part shows that the earnings cycle by country and region, and you can see that the U.S. of course has outperformed most other places, and you can see China in the red uh, being way down there. Yeah. But those cycles are starting to uh, converge on each other, oh. and that's going to be bullish for EM and other non-U.S. regions. And again, you look at the bottom. Right there, those are the P/E ratios. Uh, most of the world is trading at around 11 or 12 times earnings, right? And the U.S. is at 17. So, when you have a convergence in the earnings cycle at the same point that you have a big valuation spread, uh, that is a pretty compelling opportunity. So, the non-U.S. or non-North America, maybe we can call it that, um, allocation, I think, uh, is is a story that hopefully finally will have its day, as it is right now. That's fascinating. So, I mean, lots of questions coming in that actually that you've answered. Maybe you'll just extend what you said there, but um, thoughts on value investing in 2023. Uh, I think you've said a fair amount there, but anything to add? But you look at the super cycles, right? And that applies to commodities, to value versus growth, small versus large, international versus domestic. Um, they, they are all kind of the same thing. They all have these uh, these long waves spanning several decades. And of course, the nifty 50 or the big growers, which of course includes the fangs, have been driving the bus for the last 10 years. And everything else has been sort of underperforming because they're on the other side of that trade, which is exactly what happened in the late 1990s, right? And we ended up with a valuation bubble, lots of speculation. Uh, I don't. The, the valuation bubble certainly wasn't as bad, you know, this time around. But the speculation, you know, the meme stocks, a lot of similarities there, and and the market is now resetting itself. And but these cycles are long term, and I think that they will have some legs. So I do think it's going to be value and and um, hard assets over financial assets and um, small caps and international. There's going to be cycles going, you know, back and forth. But I think the long wave. I think is now in favor of all of those. That's fascinating. How do you walk uh, the line straight down for risk? I mean, it, everyone's going to fall in different places on that. But uh, if if you want to sort of be in the middle, what's your risk profile is there? What what do you need to know? What do you need to do? Uh, well, I'm going to sound like an idiot, but sell high and buy low. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, again, we come back to that. The liquidity environment is the market is hooked on liquidity. And so changes in liquidity are probably by far are a bigger driver than the earnings estimates. Um, and so for that orange line to go up or down is going to depend on what the Fed is going to do. And to me, the hurdle for the Fed to stop quantitative tightening and to stop raising rates, or at least to, to not start cutting rates, that hurdle is very high because inflation is coming down, but it's still at a high level. And it's not enough that it comes down. It has to come down all the way to 2%. And that, that's not to say that the Fed's going to stay at 5% until the CPI is at 2%. It will be pivoting before then. But 
you know, if the Fed pivots too soon or allows the market to switch the narrative too soon, guess what's going to happen? Financial conditions will ease. Uh, the animal spirits will come back. Right. And that's why the Fed is going through great lengths to say, listen, it's like parents telling kids, you know, like, do you hear me now? You know, and so I think that's going to be a, a, a thing that will hold the markets back. And so I would be a seller on strength, but I, I don't want to overplay the bearish case either because we've had a very significant reset. When you look at the year-over-year -year change in valuation, and I meant to say this earlier, you can see that at down 29%, was actually down 31 on a day-to-day -day basis, but the market has r rarely reset more than that, right? So, so I, I don't I, I, I don't want to understate the fact that a lot of the pain has already happened, and that's why I think 2023 will be kind of a base building year, but not yet a new bullish year. And so I don't want to overstay the bearish side. I don't want to sell and just you know be in cash. Uh, but I think it's going to be a choppy sideways year, which means you want to be somewhat neutral on risk and really emphasize the the again that second order asset allocation of what regions and countries do I want to overweight and underweight rather than do I want to be overweight stocks or underweight stocks, if, if that makes sense. Yuri and Timur, thank you very, very much uh, for your time and taking us through your incredible research that you bring together. Um, we, we appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.